0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking primarily at Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17 today. But we're going to start our reading with some verses from, from, from the beginning of the chapter so we can catch the context. So this is Matthew 3, verses 1 through 17. Friends, listen. This is God's word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, That does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word. We've been going through this gospel of Matthew, and Matthew has been introducing us to Jesus and telling us that he is the King who is coming. We've seen that Jesus brings a fresh start, a new beginning to your life. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through, Jesus comes and brings a fresh start. Matthew's also told us that Jesus is God with us. He is the presence of God on earth and with his people so that we can experience God's presence in our lives. And we saw last week that Jesus invites us to get ready for his coming through John the Baptist. Well, we're starting a new series today because the king is now here. The king who is coming comes in this passage. Jesus comes and he begins his public ministry. So Jesus had approximately 30 years of normal life. We find out elsewhere he's called the carpenter's son. And so what we see is that Jesus lived for about 30 years and he honored normal life. Right, He worked, presumably, with his dad as a carpenter. And so he honors life. He honors work and family, showing that these are part of God's will for his people. But now, now he's here as king, as king. John the Baptist is calling people, he's calling the whole nation of Israel to return to God, to come back, to repent, to come back to God and have a relationship with him. And Jesus shows up to be baptized. The people are all coming, confessing their sins, verse 6 tells us. And Jesus comes to be baptized. Now, this baptism of Jesus, there is so much that's going on here in this baptism, in this event in Jesus' life. It is pivotal. It is monumental in its importance. And the baptism of Jesus can be defined. There's one thing that if you understand in this passage, it will help you understand the entire, the, the entire message of the baptism of Jesus. The one thing that defines this entire experience is the image of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's the image of the Holy Spirit in this passage. Because, so here's the scene. Jesus comes to John the Baptist, who's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus enters into the Jordan River. He stands next to John. He is baptized. Then Jesus comes up out of the river. And after Jesus leaves the river, the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and rests on Jesus. Now, let me just make a little qualification here. It wasn't that Jesus went under the water. And when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and the, and, and the Spirit came on him. Because that's not how people were baptized in the Bible, okay? What would happen is they would enter into the river and then water would be poured over their heads. Okay, water's poured over their heads. Luke actually proves this. Luke tells us as much because Luke says in Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, it says that after Jesus came up out of the water, after he left the riverbank, he was there praying. And that's when the Holy Spirit descended on him. You can read that in Luke 21 and 22. But the key, the key is the image of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit descends on Jesus, it says, it says in verse 16, it says, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. The Spirit is like a dove. Now, this image is huge in Christian iconography. Right, If you've been around the church, even if you haven't been in the church, you might have seen this, that the, this image is used. It's used on bumper stickers. It's used on Bibles. It's used in decoration. It's used on bookmarks or logos. This image of the Spirit as a dove. When I was in seminary, I went to Westminster in Escondido, and they have those Spanish tile roofs. Right, You know what those are? Um, well, on every single one of the tiles, I, I don't know, that was in my second year, I was walking along, you know, just looking up. I don't know why I was looking up at the roof. But on every single one of these tiles, there was this little dove etched in the side. And I thought, that's kind of weird. (laughs) I mean, I just thought it was interesting. You know, that, that it was, I mean, on roof tiles. There you have the Holy Spirit as a dove etched into the roof tiles. The question is, what does this image mean? You ever thought about that? Why does Scripture picture the Holy Spirit as a dove? And I'll tell you, most people don't know. Most people don't understand why the Bible pictures the Holy Spirit at the baptism of Jesus as a dove. And it's interesting because it doesn't picture the Holy Spirit as a dove in any other place. What's more is that this is one of the few things that's in all four of the Gospels. And so something's going on here, and it's significant. This week, um, I asked all the people that I know on Facebook. I just put out there on Facebook, so anybody know why the Bible, why Matthew presents, Jesus, presents the Holy Spirit as a dove? And some people said, oh, it's a symbol of peace or love, a symbol of purity um, or innocence You know, one person said, oh, it's a messenger. Doves are messengers. None of that's right. All that's wrong. That's not why Matthew presents uh, the Spirit as a dove. But if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand why Jesus was baptized and what happened to him at his baptism. So how do you figure it out? How do you figure it out? What's the answer? Well, that's a quick lesson on how to study the Bible. So when you're stuck trying to understand something in the New Testament, you're reading along and you come across the Holy Spirit as a dove. Whoa, hold on a sec. What is that? Like, when you're stuck with something, here's one question that you always want to ask yourself. Okay, so you're reading, you see something that's confusing. Here's a question to ask yourself every time. Does this come from somewhere in the Old Testament? Just ask yourself that question and try to answer it. Does this come from somewhere in the Old Testament? Now, it doesn't always work. That doesn't always lead you to the thing that makes what's in the New Testament now understandable. But it does in this case. It does in this case. In Genesis chapter 8, in the story of Noah and the flood, we find a crucial passage where a dove appears. The dove appears, and the dove is important And whether the dove can find rest is the central theme of the dove's existence. And so I put this passage or portion of it of Genesis 8 in your bulletins. Let's go ahead and read this so that you can see what Matthew, what imagery Matthew is borrowing when he calls the Holy Spirit a dove. Look there in Genesis chapter 8. It says in verse 1, God made a wind. So let me just, let me stop here. Um, This is Noah and his family and all the animals floating on an ark. The entire world is covered with water, okay? And so so we go. Verse 1. God made a wind blow over the earth and the flood waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. Verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Verse 8. He sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he, Noah, put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out from the ark, Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So the dove for Noah was how Noah evaluated whether the flood was over whether the waters of judgment had dried up on the earth. And when the floodwaters were still on the earth, the dove had nowhere to rest. Right? You can picture that. The dove flies off, looking for a place, looking for a place. There's nowhere to rest because the dove's not going to land in the water. And so the dove comes back. When the dove came back with a leaf, it meant to Noah that the trees were now poking up out of the water. So we see the, the water levels going down. And when the dove didn't return, Noah knew that the judgment waters of the flood had dried up. You catch that? Well, Matthew is telling us that at the baptism of Jesus, the same thing happened. The Spirit was sent out of heaven by God, looking for a place to rest. And it was able to rest upon Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, it means two things. It means two things, and these are our two points today. So if you want to write something down. um, The first thing that this means, this is point number one in your outline, is that Jesus brings the end of judgment. Jesus brings the end of judgment. To the end of judgment, we see we have John the Baptist coming, right? Just for a little bit of context. John the Baptist comes and says, hey, the king is coming, right? The king is coming. He is about to appear. The king is coming, and you need to get ready to meet him. If President Obama was about to walk into this theater, what would you do? You'd have to get ready to meet him, Right? Probably not a good thing because you're in a big crowd. But what if President Obama was coming to your house this afternoon? You might even skip church. Got to get the house ready, right? We got to get our house ready. And that's the message. John the Baptist invites people to return to the Lord and warns them, if you don't get ready, trouble is coming. Judgment is coming. And so at that time, if you weren't living for God, you went to be baptized. Baptism was a time where you'd confess your sins and you'd be, you'd be cleansed of your sins and given a fresh start. Well, into that, Jesus comes. This is an amazing, amazing picture because Jesus comes and you would think, John says the king is coming, you better get ready because he's coming with judgment. And then the king comes, you'd think he's going to bring Judgment. But when Jesus comes, he comes not for judgment, but he comes to be baptized. Why? I mean, even John was confused. Verse 14, John was going to prevent him. He said, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? John's like, Jesus, you've never sinned. What are you doing here? Jesus, you have a perfect relationship with God. What are you doing here? Jesus answers. And Jesus reveals to us the very face and heart of God. Jesus says, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let me interpret that for you. What Jesus is saying is, God has come to love the world. God has come, and before judgment, There is invitation. Before judgment comes, God comes to invite us to return to him. And so the king shows up. The king comes not with condemnation, but with identification. Jesus shows up and doesn't condemn your sins, but he actually confesses your sins as though they were his own. Jesus comes and identifies with sinners. This is where it starts. This is where it starts. This is what got Jesus into so much trouble with the religious people of his day. Because Jesus was willing to come and identify himself with sinful people, with broken people with people who didn't have their act together. And it's amazing cuz he comes to this baptism where everyone's confessing their sins. And what Jesus does, I mean in this, Jesus comes confessing the sins of his people. Not standing apart from them. Like it'd be one thing if Jesus went and came in and said, "Yep, yep, this is right. That's right. All y'all, you guys stink. You're awful." You're broken. You're horrible. You better get cleansed here. Because that's what you need. Instead, Jesus, who was perfect in every way. And this is what the truly perfect people do. They don't stand off and condemn. They join in. They identify. And Jesus says, the folks who are repenting, these are my people. These are my people. Jesus is not out for the perfect. Jesus doesn't come for the perfect. Jesus comes for the honest. He comes for the honest. The people who are willing to say to God, you know what, God, I've fallen short. I've got sin in my life. I'm broken. And I'm sorry. So Jesus comes, confessing the sins of, Of his people. And he's not the only one who's done that. That actually happens periodically in the Old Testament. In in Daniel chapter 9, the confession passage that we read together today in our confession time, that's Daniel confessing the sins of his people. And if you read that chapter and you pay attention to the context of Daniel, Daniel has not committed hardly any of the sins that he confesses to God. In Nehemiah 9, it's the same way. But that's what good leaders do when things fall apart, when bad things happen, leaders don't distance themselves and say, well, it wasn't me, it was those people under me. Good leaders will enter in with a solution, will enter in with care. And that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus loves the honest, which gives us freedom and tells us that there's no, we don't need to hide. We don't need to hide. We just need to be honest with him. And in this, we see a foreshadowing of the end of the story. Right? Jesus isn't done in this passage identifying with us. He continues to identify with sinners. He continues to identify with people who are broken but honest about it. At the end of Matthew's gospel, you see where it leads him. He doesn't just confess our sins, but on the cross, Jesus actually takes the punishment for our sins on the cross Jesus brings an end to judgment not by eliminating the concept of judgment but by taking judgment on himself Jesus brings an end of judgment by taking our judgment the judgment that our sins deserve Onto himself. He owns our sins. And what we see here in our passage is that when he does that, that's when heaven opens. That's when heaven opens. And God says, That's him. That's him. That is the one that I want you to follow. The one who will be honest with you about the judgment that's coming but the one who will take your judgment if you turn and trust him. Because the Spirit descended on Jesus, meaning that judgment was over with him. Everywhere else at that point, the judgment stood. But in Jesus, the judgment ends. And if you trust in him, then your judgment is also over. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you trust in him, God paid for your sin on the cross. And you can be forgiven. That's amazing. That's our Savior. This is the King who has come. So Jesus brings an end to judgment. The second thing that Jesus' baptism does is it brings the beginning of a new world. So the end of judgment, but then second this is our second point, that Jesus brings the beginning of a new world. What was the purpose of the flood back in Genesis 8? It was to bring judgment, but also to bring a renewal and restoration of the world. It was to rid the world of sin. And so God ended the flood. God ended the flood because of his love for people and because of his plan to renew the world. That's what God is aiming for. God is aiming for a total restoration, a completely renewed heavens and earth. And so what that means for us here at Harbor, what that means for our church is that God... What that means for us is that God wants to fill the entire region of San Diego and Tijuana with the gospel so that everything is renewed spiritually, socially, and culturally. That is God's vision for our city and our region. And the floodwaters in Noah's day, they dispersed to reveal a world that was cleansed. A world that was cleansed from sin for Noah and his family. It's a picture of God's plan to renew the world. And Jesus, is baptism, at his baptism, Jesus is the beginning of that perfectly renewed world. Think about a construction project. Sometimes when they're super famous construction projects, they'll have a ceremony, right? A ceremony where they gather people from the city, leaders, guests invited friends and you know you know all the people and they they kind of have a they got a little plot of dirt that they've laid out you know and then there's like a ribbon and there's a big giant pair of scissors and a shovel with a bow on it you know they have a groundbreaking ceremony Okay, and people give speeches This is what it's going to mean. This is going to be the renewal of this part of our city. This is going to be the next best thing since sliced bread, right? This is going to mean so much for so many people. They talk about the glories of it, and then they, they take that, that, that pair of scissors, they clip the ribbon, and then someone takes that shovel, right, sticks it into that, you know, that plot of dirt, and then tosses it over to the side, and everybody cheers and goes wild. Cameras flash, news stories, right? It's a ceremonial groundbreaking Friends, the baptism of Jesus is the ceremonial groundbreaking of the new heavens and new earth. You can read the end of the Bible. If you read the last two chapters, you see where it's all going. God is going to completely renew and restore the entire universe. Sin will be completely done away with. All mourning, all tears, all sorrow, all sadness, all brokenness, all relational difficulties are going to be gone. And we will experience what some theologians call the consummation. The goal to which it's all leading. Jesus' baptism is the beginning of that. We saw that Jesus' baptism foreshadows the cross, him entering into our judgment, but it also foreshadows his resurrection. Because Jesus goes in and the floodwaters are poured over him in his baptism, and yet he comes out of the river alive. Right? It foreshadows that from death, Jesus brings life, and he is then filled with the blessings of the Holy Spirit. The image is, and it is sort of, you can trace this through the Bible. The image is that it's, it's like the Holy Spirit is the dove looking around, searching around, looking for someone to rest on, looking for someone in whom there is no judgment, looking for someone in whom he can begin this new creation. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone whose heart is completely his. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 63, God says, The day of my redemption came, and I looked, but there was no one to help. I searched, but I could find no one. And so my own arm brought salvation. And so we see from the Old Testament, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. He's bringing it to life. He's showing us what it really means because Jesus is the one whose heart was completely devoted to the Father. Jesus is himself God come down to bring salvation. And so the Spirit rests upon Jesus And with that, with the spirit resting, Jesus is then anointed. This was the coronation ceremony for the king. This is why when the heavens open up, the spirit comes down, God says, this is my beloved son, in verse 17. That's a quote from Psalm 2. Okay, and in Psalm 2, verse 7, Psalm 2 was the the psalm that was pronounced over every new king. When there was a new king in Israel, they would pronounce the psalm over that king. And so God is saying, this is the king. This is the king. And in him, I am well pleased. So we see words of affirmation. We see words of approval. In him, I'm well pleased. That's a reference to Isaiah 42, verse 1, talking about the servant, the suffering servant that Isaiah talks about the servant that would come and bring salvation, God says it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who's going to bring salvation because it's in him, it's in him that the renewal of all things is going to happen. So this is Jesus. He's the king who has come. Are you willing to trust in him? Would you like to experience the renewal of all things? Do you long for a world where things aren't broken anymore? Do you long for a day when there is no night? When there is no darkness, when there is no confusion, when there is no brokenness, when there is no frustration? Do you long for that? That's what Jesus promises to bring that's what God the Father said Jesus would bring at his baptism the spirit descends on Jesus as the beginning of a new world if you trust in him if you put your faith in Jesus then you, the Bible says that what is true of him becomes true of you We talked before about condemnation goes away if you're in Christ. The Bible says that if you trust in Jesus, if you believe in him, in his death and his resurrection, if you decide, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus because I want this that he's promising. I want this renewed life. I want this renewed experience. If you trust in Jesus, the Bible says you become God's child. And God will say over you, this is my son. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And he can be well pleased with you even in your sin. Because he's not pleased with you because of you. He's pleased with you because of the one who never sinned. On the cross, Jesus takes your sin. And when you trust in him, his righteousness, his perfection comes. And you get to wear it like a robe. It covers you. And so if you are in him and God is pleased in him, then God is pleased with you. That means forgiveness. It means you're adopted by God. It means you start fresh. And this passage again, the Spirit doesn't just descend on Jesus, but God's Holy Spirit descends on you. It's the power of the new creation. The Holy Spirit who began, who inaugurated the new heavens and earth, who inaugurated the kingdom of God, rests on us. And we become part of his kingdom. And then we get a call. Our lives become part of God building that kingdom here on earth. And so you receive these blessings when you believe in Jesus, the end of judgment, the beginning of a new world. You begin to experience those blessings in your life, and then you begin to share those blessings. Your life begins to change. The way you treat people extends this kingdom. The way you treat people becomes more filled with righteousness. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians, it says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead also works in you when you trust in Jesus. It says that the power that raised Jesus from the dead raises you from the dead spiritually so that you have new life. The power that raised Jesus from the dead seats you in the heavenly places and it gives you every blessing that God can pour out of heaven. It means that you are new. When you grab on to Jesus, when you spend time with Jesus, you will find that who he is begins to radiate into who you are. And everything changes. You become part of the new world that God is creating. And you can share that in every relationship that you have. Going back to the image of a picture, Jesus fills you up And he gives you a handle and a spout so that you can pour his love, his care, his concern, his understanding, his sacrifice into the lives of other people. And when you do that, your lives demonstrate that God is renewing the world. Your life becomes an example of what God is doing. In a sense, the people around you would be able to see the Spirit. Sending, having descended and resting on you. You just got to trust him. You trust and you follow. Trust and follow. Watch judgment end. As your conscience is salved, you can put the past in the past and you can move forward in the glory of the new creation. You can see Jesus. And as you're united to him, you can see his life being born in you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please help us to understand this? All the talk in Ephesians about being united to you and your power at work in us, it's part of a prayer, Lord, and that's our prayer, that you would enlighten our minds And help us to understand this power that works in us. Lord, we want to experience the end of judgment. And so we come to you confessing our sins. Please forgive us. And Lord, we want to experience your presence. To help us to believe. And understand and experience the power of your spirit unleashed in our lives. Lord, when we look to ourself, our faith grows thin. But when we look to you, when we see you, we know that you're alive in us. Help us, Lord to be a blessing to others. And for those who are here, Lord, and haven't trusted you, help them to be so caught up in this vision for a renewed world, a vision for a renewed San Diego and Tijuana, that they would want to experience that themselves. Help them to confess their sins and trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.